0: Hello and welcome to this Tech Blast episode, the series delivering 15 minute overviews of an issue in the lab and the solutions available to help you through it. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Tristan Free. And on this episode, supported by Promega, we'll be discussing a technique that's been well-established and well-loved by researchers for some time, but is often overlooked, Sanger sequencing. We'll discuss some of the technique's history, its development, and the key function that it still serves today. My guest is Jay Lemke, Senior Research Scientist at Promega. Jay, it's great to have you on. Thank you very much. So firstly, can you give me a brief history of Sanger sequencing? When was it invented and what are some of the key biological milestones this technique has helped us to discover?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So Sanger sequencing was invented by Frederick Sanger uh, in 1977. It's been used ever since that time and was the dominant DNA sequencing technology for most of that period. Singer sequencing has allowed for many breakthroughs in the last few decades, including efforts to sequence the first human genome, as well as genomes of many other organisms.
0: Excellent. And can you give a top line overview of the, the working principle of Sanger sequencing? How does it actually generate those DNA sequences?
1: Yeah, so Sanger sequencing works through the random incorporation of a combination of deoxynucleotides, so your standard DNTPs, and nucleotides, using a process that's pretty similar to polymerase chain reaction or PCR. So during each round of sequencing, a DNA primer is extended by DNA polymerase, and at a low frequency, a nucleotide is added in place of the normal deoxy nucleotide. When this occurs, the DNA chain cannot be extended further, and you end up with a population of different fragment sizes, all differing by one nucleotide.
0: So you get those differing lengths of nucleotides, and those, so dideoxyribonucleotides are, are labeled as well, is that correct?
1: In the current iteration of the technology, yes. So originally, this was done by radio-labeling the DNA fragments, so radioactive bases. Now this is done through fluorescently-labelled nucleotides.
0: Okay, fantastic. So, so because you have all of these different fragments of different lengths, all varying by one nucleotide, and you can identify which is the nucleotide that stopped the extension of that strand by basically arranging those in order you can identify which nucleotide is in each position.
1: Exactly. You end up with essentially a, a ladder of DNA fragments and each one is terminated at the 3 prime end of the strand with a different labeled deoxy nucleotide. So there's four different nucleotides, A, C, G and T, and each one is labeled with a different fluorophore. So When these are run on a capillary electrophoresis instrument, which is the method that is in use today, those fluorophores are excited by a laser and emit a certain wavelength of light, and that's detected on the instrument. And so you can separate these fragments by size, and you get a signal as each one passes through the detector that tells you which base it is.
0: Okay. So you mentioned when Sanger sequencing first started, it was mainly based around radionucleotides, whereas now they're fluorescent. How has Sanger developed over the years to the technologies that we're now seeing today?
1: Yeah, it's become a lot easier. So early on when it was a radio label technology, you couldn't have all four of your nucleotides in one reaction because you couldn't differentiate the signals. So you had to run one reaction with dideoxy ATP, one reaction with dideoxy CTP, etc., and then run those on separate lanes of a polyacrylamide gel. And then once that gel was run, you could dry it down and expose it to film, and the radio labeled signals would give you an autoradiogram, and you could then manually go through that and look at each individual band in the gel and call the sequence based on the size. But well, that's very tedious. Obviously, um, it can be a little bit tricky if there's secondary structure in the DNA, and it's a little hard to tell which base comes next in your sequence. Um, now, with the ability to have all four of those nucleotides in your reaction at the same time, and then running that all at once in essentially the equivalent of a single lane on a gel, now we're in, in a capillary on a capillary electrophoresis instrument, it's just become a lot easier to do that. And the actual determination of sequence is done on the instrument by the software. So there's no manual curation in most cases. You just get the sequence straight from the instrument.
0: Okay. And by removing those different steps as well, so as long as, as well as making it easier, is that also making it sort of more accurate and less error prone by taking out those kind of different steps?
1: In general, yes. The software, the currently available CEs or capillary electrophoresis instruments is very good at determining the sequence automatically. There are occasions where there'll be an artifact or something in the sequence that a human will have to go in and kind of verify what the electropherogram looks like and what caused the error and maybe call that base by hand. But that's pretty rare. Normally now you can just run it on the instrument and the instrument spits out this accurate sequence information. Okay.
0: And so the rise of Next generation sequencing, which uses similar sort of principles, but has become much faster and perhaps cheaper in some instances has been pretty well documented. Why would researchers use Sanger sequencing over next-generation sequencing techniques?
1: Yeah, it is still in widespread use. It does have some advantages over next-generation sequencing, or NGS. It's considered the gold standard for DNA sequencing, so often NGS results are validated using Sanger sequencing. And additionally, the read lengths for Sanger sequencing can be considerably longer than some of the NGS technologies on an individual read. And this can result in more accurate sequence alignment. So if there is something in your next generation sequencing data that is not being read well based on that technology, Sanger can be a way to kind of back up that technology and see what's really going on. Okay. So for a lot
0: of the early next generation sequencing techniques and, and probably the more established ones at the moment, they rely on creating quite short DNA sequence reads that you then have to piece together. And the shortness of those reads is what leads to a kind of errors or inconsistencies or potential gaps in, in your sequencing data with the introduction of sort of longer read sequencing techniques that are coming out at the moment would you still see Sanger as the gold standard there in those versus those techniques
1: in general yes it still does seem to be the the gold standard just because it's been established for so long if you find something unexpected even in those longer read uh, next generation techniques you might still rely on Sanger as a, a backup just to confirm that what you're seeing is really what you think you're seeing. And it can help going back to the the shorter read next generation sequencing. If you have a long stretch of mononucleotides or a repeat of dinucleotides or things of that nature that are longer than the read that you get on those shorter read length NGS technologies, that can be hard to assemble. So that's a a case where sometimes Sanger might be able to get through that, that sequence and get you a better alignment.
0: Okay, so it's it's handy as well for, for just validating and kind of investigating further kind of any inconsistencies that might arise through through those sequencing techniques, the the next generation sequencing techniques. And and so what what applications would do you find that Sanger is most adept for at the moment? Where's it most competitive?
1: Yeah, it's really for lower throughput uh, applications or things uh that where you're not trying to get a long assembly. No one is uh sequencing genomes anymore with Sanger sequencing. There are better technologies for that. But it is still used in laboratories all the time for simple things like checking a DNA clone. If you're kind of traditional cloning and you want to make sure your insert is correct, things like that. It's really kind of those low throughput one off kind of applications more so than longer reads because it is still cheaper on the basis of one reaction at a time. If you're looking for one sequence, you don't really go with NGS at this point. And is
0: it simple to integrate? Sanger sequencing. You said people are using it a lot just as kind of like bit parts in an experiment to, to double check and to validate. Is it simple to integrate these techniques into different studies in your lab?
1: Yeah, it's it's really simple technology to use. It's a master mix and you provide the template DNA that you're trying to determine the sequence of. You add a primer that you've designed to be complementary to your template, and you go through thermal cycling similar to a PCR. After that, there's a cleanup step to remove some of those dilabeled dioxinucleotides so they don't obscure your sequence data. But it's it's really pretty straightforward. Some people do the reactions themselves in their labs. Others send it out to a sequencing service that might be available in their area. But it's really pretty straightforward.
0: What are your top three tips for getting good results with these um, Sanger technology?
1: Yeah, uh, there's a couple things that you can do to ensure the best results. Uh, One would be to make sure you're using the appropriate amount of your DNA template and make sure that it's been purified away from any impurities that might be present in the sample. And those recommended amounts of DNA template are specified in the various kits on the market. Second, make sure that your primer is clean and not degraded and has been manufactured by a reputable source so that you end up with a single population. And then thirdly, Making sure that you do an adequate cleanup step after the sequencing reaction to remove those unincorporated dye-labeled nucleotides, that helps reduce dye blobs, which is basically an amorphous peak in your electropherogram that obscures the sequence data. So that's also pretty critical.
0: Okay, so if that—that's those dye dNTPs. So if they're not bound or have not been incorporated into any strand, they can just sort of sit there in your mix and, and lead to a, a big clump of sort of fluorescent signal readout where it doesn't actually mean
1: anything. Exactly. Yeah, they they tend to aggregate together and run at typically pretty similar locations in, a, in an electropherogram. Often people will see dye blobs, either large or small, maybe around the 75 base area in an electropherogram. And they'll typically not look like a standard peak from your DNA sequence. That's a, generally the result of having too many unincorporated terminators, the nucleotides left over. And what are some of
0: the challenges then of, of
1: working with these techniques? Yeah, there are some challenges that still face this technology, even though it's been around for quite a while. If you have DNA with high GC content, or potentially long mononucleotide repeats, or some sort of significant secondary structure in your DNA template, these can all cause difficulties in obtaining accurate information. Additionally, the read lengths that can be obtained by this method are limited based on the capillary electrophoresis method. There's a limit to the resolution of a given instrument based on the length of the capillaries that are used and also the run speed or run voltage of the instrument.
0: And then do you have any tips for how you kind of adjust for those challenges or overcome them in in different ways?
1: Yeah, some can be overcome and some cannot. Sometimes a DNA template is just not going to be amenable to this method. There are lots of troubleshooting guides available that demonstrate different techniques or different additives that you can try adding to your reactions to relax that secondary structure or just enhance processivity. There's a lot of labs and a lot of sequencing centers around the world that have been doing this for a long time and have adapted their techniques to get better results. As far as best practices... I would always recommend that the users start by following the technical literature for the product they're using. A lot has gone into that to develop that as the best way. So I think that's a good starting point. And then if that's not working, there's a lot of other places to turn for information.
0: Fantastic. And so my final question then, Jay, is if you could improve one aspect of Sanger sequencing today, if you could click your fingers and, and fix something, what would it be?
1: Yeah, I think it would probably be the ability to overcome some of those challenges we talked about with difficult templates. So things with high GC content that are harder to melt the DNA strands or the long mononucleotide repeats that can result in your DNA polymerase slipping and cause a stutter. If there was a way or some additive that you can add that would make that magically go away, I think that would make a lot of people's lives easier that use this method. Unfortunately, no one has that magic bullet yet, but can always wait and see.
0: Fingers crossed. Hopefully hopefully, someone will stumble across it. Jay, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, if you would like to find out more about Sanger sequencing, you can get more information from our In Focus on Sanger sequencing over on www.biotechniques.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode or would like to find more like it, you can check out the podcast section of our site or follow at Cy Tristan on Twitter for regular updates, threads, and our latest episodes. Thank you for listening and goodbye.